Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. G'day. When I think of iconic fashion designers in Australia, one name jumps to mind, Colette Dinigan. Obsessive Creative is the name of her book, and this title perfectly sums up this creative force of nature. Born in South Africa, schooled in New Zealand, Colette started a business in Sydney, and she's been based in Australia since that time. Her first designs to sell were lingerie. Colette started sewing and making pieces from her studio in Paddington behind a home. After knockbacks from Australian stores, she went straight to the top, Barney's New York City, and convinced the buyer to stock her work. Supermodel Cindy Crawford was the first customer. The next thing, Colette's creations were in some of the most prestigious stores around the world, and the international fashion press and buyers were red hot for this new designer from down under. The demand for Colette's designs led to outerwear, dresses, jackets, and more. She became the first Australian fashion designer to mount a full-scale ready-to-wear collection in Paris and has shown within the prestigious Paris Fashion Week schedule an impressive 33 times. Colette's work has appeared in film and television and has been worn by fashion icons worldwide, including Madonna, J-Lo, Princess Mary of Denmark, the Duchess of Cambridge, Nicole Kidman, Angelina Jolie, Julia Roberts, Pink, Diana Ross... Cameron Diaz, Sandra Bullock, Beyonce, and many more. Hard work and attention to detail have been Colette's driving forces, but it's her astute business mind that's kept the show on the road for more than three decades. Accolades include Australian Designer of the Year, the Leading Women Entrepreneurs of the World Award, the Louis Vuitton Business Award in 97, and in 2017, she was ordered the Order of Australia for her services to fashion. Colette was one of the first Aussie designers to collaborate with other iconic brands outside of her own, such as Marks & Spencer, Target in Australia, the range sold out in a matter of minutes. Recently, she teamed up with supermarket chain Aldi to design a children's line inspired by her own kids, which likewise was snapped up with gusto. Over the past decade, Colette has broadened her design work to interior spaces for herself, private clients and hotels. And she's main collaborator and ambassador roles with companies such as Mila, Qantas, Audi, Specsavers, Linen House, Porter's Paints and more. Colette's also found time to help other entrepreneurs with a stint as chairperson of the New South Wales Small Business Development Corporation. And recently, she's jumped out of a comfort zone into the world of reality TV. Celebrity MasterChef is an opportunity for Colette to showcase her passion for cooking and entertaining. And I can tell you, she can cook. This is coming soon to Network 10 in Australia. It's a real honour to welcome to the blank canvas, the talented, the lovely Colette Dinigan. Good morning, Colette. Good morning, Lee. Thank you for joining me. You know, when I first had the idea to do this podcast, The Blank Canvas, a year ago, I was in Melbourne, I was in lockdown, and, you know, the first three dream guests that came to mind were yourself, 
David Bromley and my wife, Kate. Well, I knew I'd get access to Kate because we were in lockdown together, so that was a bit of a no-brainer. I went to David and, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to, and so he was the first cab off the rank. And then I took your uh, obsessive creative coffee table book off the bookshelf and I kind of put it on my desk and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, and Colette. So, so anyway, we've, um, we've had a few false starts and you've moved around and we've moved around. We've been in and out of lockdown, but I'm chuffed that we've finally managed to make it happen and here we are. I know. And all that time you've been coming to stay and then there's been a lockdown and something's been cancelled. It's been quite a crazy world. But um, no, and excuse my lack of technology because I'm the person, I'm sort of, everything's by hand, not by IT. So we've got it together now. I'm thrilled. That's great. I've um, poured over the coffee table book and wow, what a large life. What an extraordinary body of work and so many amazing adventures. The thing that really appeals to me, and I love that it's right at the start, is the photo of your dad with the fish because he's such an old salt and, as you say, he's like the last of the pirates. I've met your dad and he he has a real grit to him and I think, obviously, you're in a different space to him and you've spent your life being a creative, but it's that grit that I see from your dad that you have that gives you sort of the persistence just to push through on any of the activities you've embarked on. So tell me about growing up in South Africa, fishing, yachts, all these sort of outdoor adventures with your dad and how that sort of left an imprint on you. I think, you know, it's true. We did. We had a very adventurous life. And I think that's something from both of my parents was instilled in me. It was, it's about, you know, you can always try, go and get it. There was no fear and everything was about looking at the positive and being strong. And, um, and at the time, I can even remember when we left South Africa, it was a terrible storm on Boxing Day. And dad's take on that was, oh my goodness, such great sailing weather. And all my mother's relatives and friends were, oh, you can't leave now. You know, it's 60 knot winds and look at the seas and harbours being closed and um but he was you know quite the opposite and it was always about you can do it and and I think that gave me you know especially sailing on the yacht with the family a huge amount of not just a sense of adventure but independence and discipline because you had to listen to what your parents and the captain said because you couldn't fall overboard there were a lot of hazardous sort of situations particularly in stormy weather and that did it gave me that kind of thing the as you said the grit but the earthiness to go and get it and to never give up and anything's possible. And and I think sometimes, you know, as a teenager, especially that youthfulness, I was always like, I can conquer the world. I can do everything. I know everything. Why is everybody doing it so wrongly and I can do it better? And I think what I've learned as I've got older and not necessarily the wiser, but I've become, you know, much more humble in my way of appreciating everybody else. But I also have less of not a sense of adventure, but I'm also like, I respect so much more what people do and how things take so long to change. And, you know, everybody has their place. So it's that usefulness versus getting older, I think, that you lose that kind of courage and the um, lack of fear, you know, there's that fear isn't there of changing or what might happen, especially when you have children, you know, suddenly your children are first and you are very conscious of what might happen or could happen and um, it's growing older too. But no, you're right, he gave me my way in a way. Yeah, that's beautiful. I could really relate to it because my dad is a bit of an old salt as well. And we grew up, you know, surfing, swimming, sailing, fishing, all of those things. And I guess when you're dealing with the ocean, you know, you have to have a great respect for it. 
And um, yeah, that, that sailing instilled a kind of discipline in, in us as well. And I can see that because like the world you launched yourself into, the fashion world, yeah, there's some glamorous images that come out of it, but oh my God, the hard work. And I mean, I saw you in action in Paris when you, you know, put on shows there. I saw you in action with shows in Sydney. I don't know. It's a really tough business, the fashion business. And I respect anyone that throws their hat in the ring, let alone, you know, tackles it on a global scale like you did. Tell us, how the hell did you go from, I don't know, like, yeah, sailing in New Zealand and then I'd read somewhere that after school you went and applied to like a graphic design course and you thought you're doing graphic design and then you go and you're there on the first day and you find out, oh, I'm doing fashion design. Is that true? Well, kind of. I mean, I left school and I can remember being in a class and being incredibly frustrated and that was part of my time of probably, you know, you can do anything and it has to happen very quickly and if not tomorrow, you know, should have been yesterday. And I had my maths teacher who I got on very well with and he said, you're so frustrated. Why don't you go? There's the graphics course and the fine arts and um, fashion designs closing tomorrow or the day after. I can't remember thereabouts. He said, you should go and apply for them. It's in Wellington at the design school. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So I applied for both graphics and fashion. And I thought that I hadn't read my acceptance properly, but I'd gotten to both of them, I think. And I actually turned up for the graphics course thinking that was my first choice and realized when I was sitting there after ordering, you know, getting all our artwork and paints and brushes and everything, which made sense. And there was tape measures and pins and calico. And I was thinking, gosh, this is very strange for a graphics course to be having all of this kind of pattern making equipment or, you know, a lot of right angles and rulers. And and then I sort of said to a friend next to mine who became very good friends, Graham Walker, I said, what course are you doing? He said, well, fashion and textiles. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> and, you know, that's where it started. And, you know, even during those years I was there, after the first year, there was a process of elimination. If you didn't pass your exams, you didn't make the second year. And I know I was on that borderline where they I absolutely thought I was the least likely to be a fashion designer and even on graduation. And yet I was one of the only students that actually had their own business. And I think one of three out of about 20 that stayed in the fashion business. So the irony of it all, really. Wow, that's amazing. And so like lots of schools, particularly these days, a lot of people I'm talking to comment on the fact that so many art schools and creative schools have become so theoretical and there's a lot less sort of practical application Clearly, you can cut your own patterns and you knew how to build a garment and all the rest of it. Is that something you learnt at school or did you just learn in the fray as you got out there and you started creating your own clothes? No, you know, I actually think I found a lot of art schools that we took work experience students from in Australia to be quite the opposite. A lot of it was about design and communications and marketing and PR. Whereas in New Zealand, you know, the school I went to for design and textiles was very much about tailoring and pattern making. And it was very much the practical theory and theory side of construction of a garment, of textiles. And so I had, you know, my knowledge was a lot greater than probably a lot of other similar students graduating from design schools in Australia and I was able to go out and make my own patterns and drape a garment and sew something and the focus I think was a lot less on actual design because I figure that it's just like if you have a you know a voice or you're able to act it's in you but you need to kind of put some theory and practical behind it and the understanding and a little bit of discipline so 
That's the way I guess I came through fashion design. And when I got to Australia, you know, I learned so much more working in the ABC costume department and a couple of companies I first worked for. And that's where the practical sort of really kicked in. And also the business side, because that's something you don't tend to learn very much when you're studying it. You have to have both, especially in the fashion world in the time I grew up. You had to have commercial and creativity. You couldn't just be creative as perhaps maybe in the 60s and 70s you could it was about pleasing your customers and selling the goods but also about wowing them with a the new design they want the same thing but different and it can't be too different but it can't be too much like last season otherwise they won't buy it again so there was a a lot of you know contrast and things you had to deal with and I think, you know, had I known and probably dreamed so much of being in the fashion world, perhaps it would have been something that I wouldn't have tried to prove myself or, you know, I I went forth with a lot of force because I didn't really know what I was ever getting into. And had I known now how difficult, perhaps maybe not, I don't know. But I also think like everything, even like the music world or like the film world, everything's changing because... When I was in Paris and I can remember the photographers signing indemnities and non-disclosures so the photographs couldn't be released till Vogue and Elle and all the magazines came out. You know, you only allowed so many photographers and everybody had to sign with Chambre Syndicale and then, you know, it was such a secret. Then it became about the bloggers and everything being live streamed. So suddenly you didn't need to be at the shows and now it's about buying online and online sales. So you lost that kind of one-to-one customer a retail interaction and you look at music world you know a lot of youtube you know apple music it's not about going into record stores like i used to love and flicking through the records and finding the new david bowie album cover and it being released and everybody waiting for the new album to come out and then collecting the cassettes because they were smaller and you know every generation i think changes and it's likewise for film so i think fashion now to me is hard enough getting a zoom call to work I can't imagine navigating, you know, an environment of spreadsheets and PDFs and and design and not touching a textile or talking to a customer or having dinner with them and talking the talk. My generation and my time was definitely when I had my day in Paris, I think. Yeah, well, it was pretty glorious. I mean, I think you were the first that took an Australian collection to Paris and was in the shows there. And then you did it again, I think, for over 10 years or something, didn't you? Yeah, no, for nearly 20 years. I did 36 shows in Paris. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, no, it was a business. And even to this day, I think I was the only person, especially the only female that owned her own business and showed up against, you know, all the other competitors. And a lot of companies would either buy up competing designers or, you know, they certainly didn't come from Australia on their own. And, you know, Qantas was such a help. They used to always say, here she comes with her 25 suitcases. And, you know, when things got lost in London, when we transited, it would always be, we knew the direct lines through to everybody and a suitcase would, you know, always have the shoes in or something so crucial. But I guess it was just part of how we were. And and now I look back and you're right. I think, oh my goodness, it was so difficult at the time, but it was just part of what you did. Yeah, well, Kate and I came one year and saw your show in Paris and, um, I mean, we were flabbergasted. There was so much involved and you were, like, literally up against the biggest designers in the world all doing their things all over town at the same time 
and it, it was so much pressure. We know what's involved putting a show on, but flying to the other side of the world, doing that, you've got the models, you've got the hair, you've got your makeup. It sounds really simple, and obviously the images that are delivered always look effortlessly glamorous, but behind the scenes, the work and the speed that the things come together is so intense. I mean, we were like, holy shit, that's stressful, <laughs> but we had a ball. Yeah, I mean, it was exciting, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. And I think it's one thing, especially from the outside world, you know, it's six months getting that collection together. It goes in 15 minutes and then you're packing up and the next day sales starts for two weeks. So you're kind of constantly just moving and then you're starting the next collection again. And and I think that was the thing, especially after having Hunter, I could not live on that wheel. You know, it was constantly hungry and needing to be fed, as were my children and, you know, family and work really started after having a second child for me I just couldn't keep up it was so demanding and as the world and fashion started to change as I mentioned before where it wasn't sort of the old school way of waiting for the photographs to come out or the orders to be faxed through everything was so immediate that it was so demanding and so competitive and you know we weren't able to also run stock levels like some of the other houses were which you know I'm glad we didn't because I think a lot of it was um you look at now the waste, there were so many companies that would run the stock, they wouldn't sell it and they would burn it like Burberry. I mean, they've been crucified in the press as they should because what a waste. I mean, things for me always, whether it's our food or whatever, it's about being made to order, it's about less waste, about regenerating, about caring for our environment, our customers and and a lot of that personal side is gone, I think, in the world of fashion. It's so ruthless. Yeah, absolutely. Let's um, backtrack a little to, so you, you left design school in New Zealand. You came to Australia. Your first clothing which you've designed, which was lingerie. And just talk us through, would you cut it, make it, sew it, do it all yourself? Or did you have a few people working for you? And where did you sell it initially? And how did you, you know, get to that first step of, you know, selling it? Gosh, yeah, no, I can remember doing the lingerie actually. And I collected a lot of antique laces and things um, around the world. And even a lot from Australia actually that came from Europe in the you know, 60s and 70s and great quality ribbons and pieces. And I mixed them with silks and I started making them. And I can remember going into Mode magazine at the time. My friend was there, Nikki, and all the editors started taking orders. And I only started doing it never really as a proper business. And then like I did a catalog and then people saw a bit of press. And, and I was very not au fait with any of the press side or marketing was more about the craft side of it. And then I started to realize over a period of few years that if you started to get press, you started to get a lot more orders and attention. And I did try to sell it in Australia and it didn't go very well. And I went to David Jones and they weren't interested because I wasn't a brand. And so I can remember being um, one time when I was with Bernie, he was recording an album in New York and I went to Barney's to see the um, buyers and I kept on knocking on their door. I couldn't get an appointment, so I went to the office and the doorman there said, oh, it's you who's been faxing through all these lingerie photos. There's only buying days on whatever days of the month and you have to line up. And I was like, well, I can't. I'm going back to Australia tomorrow. It was the old 17th and um, 7th Avenue store, I think, 17th Street and 7th Avenue. And um, he said, look, I'll try. I know one of the buyers. I'll see if she can see you. And she did. And she ordered immediately. And, you know, it was such a thrill. And then I can remember my first customer who bought 
I think it was a Bastille or something with Cindy Crawford and Barney's when it got there. And it sort of opened up the world. It was like a showroom for me because all the fashion, you know, press and buyers, they all went to Barney's to see what Barney's had in store, whether it was in lingerie or in clothing. And, and from there I went into Harvey Nichols and to Harrods and to Joyce in Hong Kong and it, opened up my world and I opened a little store in Paddington and William Street where I would sew, I'd make the patterns, I did everything myself, I did the bookwork, I did the sales and it started to take off by word of mouth and was a destination store and then I don't know however long ago, 30 years ago I think, it was 20, something like that, 22, 23 when it started and that's where I began. Wow, wow, that that is incredible. I remember around that time because I was living in Sydney at that time and I remember it was just kind of like wildfire. Once it took off, it was just kind of like the hot ticket item for, for every girl. I guess the thing about your creations is they make women feel fabulous, feel gorgeous, and they love that. Um but yeah, no, I think too, you know, as that started to happen, what I ended up doing was instead of just making little French boxer shorts and bras and camis, then it was a slip dress and then it was a bustier and then Madonna wore the bustier in one of her video clips and then she wore a slip dress and another video clip. Remember video clips? <laughs> we used to all go, what's a new video clip with that song? So, you know, I got a lot of attention with that and then Barney's in the lingerie department, they created their own kind of Colette Dunigan lingerie department that was kind of underwear and outerwear because a lot of the dresses girls were buying to wear, you know, just out as a little cocktail dress. And then I can remember after that, actually, I did my first show in Paris because one of the buyers from Harvey Nichols said to me, Colette, no one knows how to put your things together. You know, you've got an underskirt, you've got a print underskirt, you've got a lace overskirt, and you've got a bustier, and you've got something that goes underneath that, and something goes on top. Well, you should do a show because we really need images. And I did my first show at Angelina in Paris off the calendar. And this is how naive I was. I was with Stephen Todd and he, I was staying with me. He said, of course we can do it. And we found another Australian friend who could do hair and makeup. And I think we had eight models or 10 models. We did the music ourselves. I handed the invitations, absolutely everything. But because all these corsets and all these skirts with lacings up the sides and we borrowed boots, I was the only dresser for all these models. And it was Beyond, I can't even begin to tell you that the girls had to have a corset laced up, you know, then they had to have a skirt laced up and then they had to have a pair of undies laced up underneath that. And then the boots had to be laced up. And in the end, I can remember lying down thinking, I can't ever do this again in my life. I'm speechless. But it was the beginning of, you know, as you said, a demand for the brand. And it really helped me doing it that way because I think there hadn't really been a brand that had done underwear as outerwear and mixing and layering and prints. And, and at that time, it got a lot of attention. Yeah, it absolutely did. Who was the first to wear the underwear as outerwear? Was that something you were wearing yourself or is that something that happened elsewhere? Well, I, I guess, you know, I would wear my clothes most definitely, but I also think I started in 95, I guess, and then through a couple of years later, I was the first person at a PR company in London called PR Purple. I was the first customer or their first client, I guess, and they dressed a lot of, lot of red carpet dressing and so we had a lot of stars wearing the clothes because, you know, it was younger, it was fresher, it was modern, it wasn't necessarily couture or Chanel or, and so that became the first time that designers would, I guess, start 
dressing celebrities or movie stars, musicians and things. And so it got huge attention around the world. I mean, I've dressed, I think at that time, most of whether it was Angelina Jolie when she removed her tattoo for the first time or broke up with somebody. There was a lot of attention always with Jennifer Lopez wearing my underwear. And, you know, so it went from one extreme to the other. And there were great days. And I started selling to many stores. I opened a store myself in London. But, you know, at that time, I spent my life flying around the world. I was in New York. I was in San Francisco. I was in LA. I was doing trunk shows everywhere in Paris. My stores in Turkey wanted me. I had no children. So it was totally doable. And I loved it. It was such a great time and it was fun. I guess it was the 90s and the Olympics here in 2000 and fun times, but a lot of hard work and a lot of the time too. I had such amazing invitations to go to things or go places, but most of the time I'd say, I'm so sorry, I can't. I have to work. So my days and weekends and nights were taken up with work as much as it seemed so glamorous. Yeah, I've seen you in action and I've stayed with you a few times over the years and I've seen you, you know, work around the clock and the administrative side and the running of the business side. Well, it was monumental, wasn't it? Oh, it was, you know, so many staff and not just staff in, you know, Australia, it was America and I think I had one time PR in New York and London and LA, Paris, New Zealand. There were so many just different agencies to get together and meet different legislations in different countries. France was different from England and America and there was so much to follow. And I, you know, in the early days, I think you, you get some sort of kind of allowance of it's a first show, it's a first this, but then you do have have to step up to the mark and kind of hit that very professional note and also you want to because I think as a designer like you know as I morphed from lingerie into slip dresses I kind of then went to tailoring and I think you need to progress and I think by adding tailoring to the design repertoire, I felt like it matured the brand, but not in an old way. And also with my business, that was a time when it grew up. And, you know, you have to have a lot of rules and regulations and it takes away a lot of the fun. But to me, it was always about a very fair playing field and I didn't favor anybody. And I felt discipline was important across the board if one person did something wrong. It wasn't about somebody else getting away with it. So I found that very hard to police. But at the same time, you know, I was always wanting to reward people in a way too, if they did very well in the business. And I think fashion compared to a lot of other businesses is so distinctly different because you have a myriad of people with different emotional you know, you've got our accountants and our lawyers who are very objective and then you get into the design room and it becomes very subjective and then you move into production and some people haven't even graduated, you know, from a college degree or in cutting and the manufacturing side. And so you've got people with very different I guess, qualifications or some that have none. And it becomes a, a very difficult machine to run and understand all those different levels and also understand the nuances of not just the people but just what the consumer might do or telling you know somebody that I really want to invest in this color yellow and it's going to take $50,000 to print that fabric and yes you might not make any money back on it but really it's what the whole rest of the collection hinges on and underneath that will be the commercial level and I need everyone to believe in that with me and the design room would but the accounts department didn't. <laughs> it's just always, it was a difficult thing to run when the business got large, I have to say. Absolutely. I think you're a really astute businesswoman. And I think, haven't you been the chairperson or something of the Small Business Association of Australia or New South Wales or something? Yes. 
Yeah, no, I was for a few years. Oh, that's amazing. Look, to me, I still believe, you know, if you have integrity and honesty and really good ethical values and you run on a lot of instinct, you need to know your facts and figures and you do need to check them and you do need to, I think, listen to your surrounding do you know what's happening in the environment or politically? You need to have a very good general knowledge and use all of those different things and have the ability to change. So it's a lot to ask a lot of people. You know, some people don't like change and people don't like to listen to everybody around them. They like to tell them what to do. Others just like to lead and not follow. So I, I don't believe it's about having any one of those things in particular. It's about amalgamating a lot of different things together. And if you are honest, I think your instinct is the number one player and you need to listen and learn and that never stops. And that's what I tried in business was to find something that was missing in the market, research it, trust your instinct, start small, grow big, but put systems into place early on. And if you feel like something's failing, don't try and prove everyone else wrong pull back or like, for instance, when the Lehman Brothers and everything crashed in New York and the first thing I knew was, oh my goodness, they're all my customers, producers, wives, parties, Barneys, everything's going to stop. I know they'll get scared. And, you know, quickly to, I think everyone couldn't believe how quickly I changed my business model, which was within months. And I started a new label as well as my mainline label, Colette by Colette Dinnigan, because suddenly I knew they'll still want to buy something in six months, but they're not going to want to spend the money that they did. Parties would stop happening because those executives weren't around. There were no bonuses. And I think that's about reading the market and trusting your instinct. It's not about being told what to do because from a business point of view, it's so important to trust your instinct and to look and learn and listen to what's going on around you and in the world. Lots of good advice in there. <laughs> I know, I know you've, you've lived through it. Hey, um, tell me, just let's go back to your dresses for a minute because I remember, you know, I've, I've been with Kate for 30 years and some of her cherished dresses and jackets and things over the years have been yours. I mean, it's just been beautiful. It must be a real buzz to see the amount of joy and the passion that these pieces bring people and that they're still in Kate's wardrobe and or archives. It must be really cool. No, you know, it's even when we're living in Italy over the last few years or so, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people go, oh, you Colette Dinnigan, the designer from Australia? I go, yeah, you know, here's me in my sarong or at the beach or in some kind of shift because it's summertime in Italy and I'm at the gardener's markets. And they had no idea my business had stopped, but they'd always say, my daughter got married in your dress or I got married or I wore my first dress to a really special event and they all have stories and I think like a lot of things those dresses tell a lot of stories and they keep a lot of secrets you know too but since closing my business too you know I've got my archive of some of my favorite pieces and I still don't quite know what to do with it because it's out in storage and you know I, I think it's it's very satisfying and I think it's kind of retrospective because when you're in the moment, you kind of don't take that on board. You just kind of go, yeah, 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 next because you're on to the next thing. But looking back now at my career, I sort of appreciated a lot more, you know, the amount of compliments I get from what I did. And, and I also realized too, you know, my hard work wasn't in vain because so much was done by hand and, you know, one-off pieces and so many different fittings and fashion now, a lot of clothing is so disposable and it's not handmade. And I always believe that there would be a world where people mm. would appreciate, you know, the handmade factor. And I, I, th I think that's true now. Absolutely. Um, 
Tell me about some of the people you dressed and some of the places you went with that. Well, I think, you know, I've done a few big wedding dresses, like I did Sarah Murdoch's wedding dress, and she looked absolutely stunning. Well, of course, she's going to anyway. She, she could wear a paper bag and look stunning. And that was a great wedding. You were there. Yep. You know, and I've done other people's wedding dresses like Tony Collette. So those have all been great moments too because you learn a lot about someone, their kind of apprehensions, their, you know, love, their passions, and it's a very personal moment in their lives. So it's very different. Whereas I guess dressing a lot of even Princess Mary or the different royal family members and things because often I don't put myself into the fitting. I'll send, you know, my pattern maker or seamstress as well, you know, unless something really needs to be changed and I'm making something specifically. So I didn't, you know, meet a lot of people, but a lot of people would come to the shows and I guess I would see a lot of the pictures of stars wearing clothes, but you know, I'm quite shy in that way. I'm not there to meet people. It's much more about making the clothes for me and making sure the clothes are made well than attending parties and the clothes had to talk for themselves, really. <laughs> well, I've seen you with the garden clippers and you're equally at home out in the garden pruning a tree as you are, you know, cutting a pattern, aren't you? Yeah, you know, I love the land. I love animals and, you know, it's not a secret and I love my vegetable garden and I nurture everything and and I always have been like that and I think that's the one thing after sailing from South Africa and ending up in New Zealand. My mother planted the gardens, taught me cooking and all that side of it and what grows when and how you grow things from slips and and I find that so satisfying because it's nature and nature is so important and it's so important to keep it going and look after the planet we live on but I get a lot of satisfaction from gardening I really do yeah Kate's the same she loves pottering around out there it's a it's a good therapy too isn't it it truly is it makes you feel good and especially when things start to grow and you know it's now in barrel where I'm blossom season and the blossoms are coming out and all the bulbs I planted a few years ago. The only problem, I don't know if you can hear them now, the cockatoos are there and I'm kind of chasing cockatoos <laughs> away like people chase Indian miners away, you know, sort of say stop eating all my new bulbing plants. <laughs> That's a good segue to MasterChef. I believe you're on the forthcoming MasterChef series. Yes, so that was a bit of a surprise, me and reality television. I, you know, I've never watched it. We don't have TV. So they were very very convincing in talking me into it. And, you know, I, what I just thought in the end is like, what have I got to lose? I want to leave my comfort zone from my secateurs. And, you know, I made a big step in changing, leaving fashion and kind of going much more into the interiors world. So I guess I'm one of those people who change doesn't worry me or an adventure. But I guess doing something on reality television was absolutely out of my comfort zone. I could not think of anything where I was more out of my comfort zone. But, you know, I guess given lockdown, given COVID, so many things happening to people, I thought, what have I got to lose? I said, I'm going to have fun. I knew a couple of the people on the show, so it gave me a bit of security, I guess. And um, I did. I had a lot of fun. It's quite, it's extraordinary, actually. I, I will never be able to watch it because I've never been able to watch myself on television. But, you know, I learned so much and I had a lot of fun and the other contestants were fantastic and I loved being with them every minute of the day. You know, we laughed so much and cried. We did everything. It was a very emotional show. Oh, I'm sure. I, I can't wait to see it. And having, you know, lived through a few reality TV shows with Kate, I know um, it's a launch into the unknown and um, it's scary. 
Harry, and it is, a, it is, it is emotional. And I've eaten your food before. I know you're a great chef, so I'm sure you delivered some great dishes. But you're not the producer of that show. And you know, when you go on to one of those shows, you're in the hands of, in a way, of the producers and how it's cut. So I hope they look after you. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. You probably have your things that everyone does, I'm sure, you know, that you go to when you cook, but I'm not the one who kind of would get a cake recipe out and bake a cake. And so a lot of the challenges aren't necessarily set up for you for what you cook. Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. Hey, um, tell me about the cultural experiences or whatever you call them down there. I guess they're on hold at the moment down in the Southern Tablelands or the Southern Highlands with um, COVID and everything, but I really loved the look of what you'd created there. Is that something you're going to continue post-COVID? Oh, we've had to cancel the first two because obviously no one can travel in September. And so I don't know, we put so much work into it, bringing everyone together. So I'm not sure, to be honest, because I've got my children's book I'm launching in October and, you know, a few other projects, my ceramics and my candles. So that all requires a lot of work. So I'm not sure. We'll see. Look, see what happens in the new year and then we perhaps may still do the November experience if we can, but it's just a lot of people to organise, a lot of dates, a lot of times, and it's been such a shame because we would have had so much fun doing them and really was all about, you know, artists and nature and a collective of our friends actually who just get together and tell stories around campfires with a few people that come and join along. Yeah, it sounded wonderful. What about on the design front? Are you still doing one-off collections, combining, joining up with different designers and different retailers and that kind of thing? I know it went really well with Aldi, what you did, and oh, I think a few others. I did a lingerie collection with Marks and Spencers, and I did um, a collection for the Australian Ballet that we partnered with Target, which was fantastic because we were able to raise money for... Um, the ballet to go to areas out back the children otherwise wouldn't have normally been able to experience. And I mean, that was great. So I know I love collaborating. I think it's like anything, you know, good food shouldn't cost a lot. Good design isn't about money. It's about colors and proportion and design really. And so, you know, my ethos is that I love working with some of the larger companies that have this scale of economy as long as they can show that ethically they're producing the goods properly and it's good for the environment. Um, that to me is where I find it's the most exciting because it is large scale and the prices are very affordable and we're able to deliver good design to the community or to the marketplace that isn't overpriced. Yeah, makes sense. What would you say today to young designers starting out? Would you say, hey, go to a college, go to East Sydney College, other places, or with the various online platforms, would you just say, you know, start making things and find a market or sell them online and start a business? Any thoughts on the best way to start out these days? Well, I most definitely think you need, you know, training, whether it's through a technical college or a university or an art school, you definitely need a background in technical fashion, pattern making, draping. And I also think to back it up, you need, whether it's 50-50 or 75-25, you need the work experience and working in a company where you're putting the theory into practice. And I believe design is very important. And a lot of designers or want to be designers go into it for the wrong reasons. They want to go and to meet famous people or to get press or become famous. And for me, it wasn't about that at all. It's about the craft. It's about an idea. It's about the execution of an idea. It's about 
contemporizing something that after all clothes are just being reinvented time and time again and fashion it's about a trend it's about what's relevant it might be political it might be about nature it's about the world around us and it's an artistic impression of how we like to express ourselves and to me it's very important especially making women's clothes is to make them feel confident and comfortable and you know to do it with quality and those things so you know, for new designers now, I would suggest, you know, they need to understand exactly why they want to do it. They do need to be creative to a point, but they do need to also now more than ever understand you have a good business sense and also spread themselves in different places, you know, have a little point of sale that people can touch and feel, be savvy online. It's actually a lot more cost effective now to do your own campaigns because you could shoot them on an iPhone upload them, Instagram, it's immediate. So there's a lot of advantages, but the disadvantages are there are a lot less companies that actually employ people, particularly in Australia, that have the whole gamut of production like we did, you know, from design through to pattern making, through to fittings, through production. So it's give and take, but I think essentially the marketing side and the sales side, they've got a lot of advantages, but they need to make sure that themselves can manage it as well as being able to make a garment, even if it's from your bedroom. You know, you can start sewing anywhere if you've got a sewing machine and you have to work hard. Like it's not nine to five, it's seven days a week, 12 hour days minimum. And when you do go to sleep, you're thinking of the ideas, daylight hours and working hours, the actual physical fact of making the clothes, cutting them, delivering them and doing the production side of it. And sleeping time is about the thought process and about the dreams and the initiatives and the, so it's, it's not what you think and you need to have that. And I think dreams are so important or ideas are so important. And usually that's what keeps me awake at night. <laughs> totally. <laughs> are there any um, Australian designers or even international designers that you're um, loving at the moment? I think international designers, I love what's happening with Valentino at the moment. I think there's an easy breeziness, but there's a coutureness, the, the colour and the cut and the prints I love. If I was to be wearing anything and be very dressed up and had a glamorous occasion to go to, I would be looking to Valentino. But, um, you know, in Australia, I think even Kitex has come back with the ethical fashions and recycling. And, and I think there's a lot of designers, you know, um, who do clothes that are in smaller runs. And, you know, one store in Barrel, in fact, is the South Store. Sophie, she has an incredible collection of designers that aren't very expensive. A lot of them are um, Nordic. But, you know, there's a lot of Australian designers too. And it's, you know, affordable clothes are very classic in a way that are just cut well for women. And I think that's important at the moment. I don't think it's necessarily about making a fashion statement or being on trend or whatever. It's about feeling comfortable. And and I think lockdowns have taught us all. It's, you know, really about quality, comfortable clothes that you feel like putting on every day to make yourself feel good rather than sort of feeling tight and compressed and having any angst or so. It's another world again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And tell me about the book. Oh, the book. I can show it to you. I've got one. I've got one last week here. Cool. Can you see it? Oh, wow. It's called Santa Loves Australia. And it's a children's book. This is my second children's book. I did one a couple of years ago. And I'll show you some of my favourite illustrations. Luke Skibaris, you know, the Australian artist, he did it with me. So that's the Lunar Park. Oh, wow. So. Oh, that looks amazing. So it's a children's book and it's really a, a book about 
I guess Australia, the animals, the flora and fauna, the different territories and places. And it's kind of meant to be quite informative. It's got to, you know, I always do a glossary in my book. So it's about echidnas, it's about the flying doctors, it's about Uluru, it's about constellations. And it's a mix really of Aboriginal cultural and places and meeting places and places that children dream of. And ultimately, it's about, I guess, keeping the mystery and the magical and the effervescence to a child's life and with great illustration. And, you know, I don't know what age children grow out of Santa, but for me, there always needs to be something to believe in. It doesn't always have to be Santa Claus, but it's the idea of telling stories. Yeah, that's beautiful. Magic, you know, you've got to keep the magic alive at whatever age, don't you? You've got to keep the yeah, dreams there. Yeah, exactly, especially for adults. We're a lot more cynical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know your lovely hubby, Bradley, do you collaborate with him on a lot of these projects? Well, the experience is yes. And also our house in Puglia, we did a old farmhouse there, Casa Olivetta. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen the photos on your Instagram. It looks amazing. It's beautiful. And so, you know, we spent lockdown there. So we did a lot to the property, but I drive him crazy, really. You know, my attention to detail and, you know, he's like, get it done. And I'm like, no, it's not quite 100% <laughs> and let's go again. So, you know, we we spend a lot of time together, of course, in lockdown and we're very supportive of each other's businesses and have our own opinions. And I guess as everyone does in a marriage. But I think less and less we probably do collaborations because especially we both work from home, it's easier to have our own little journeys and the experiences were a huge collaboration and unfortunately that, as I said, because of lockdown hasn't happened. Yeah, gotcha. On a side note, I remember when your stamp came out and I was like, wow, Colette Dinigan's made it. She's got her own stamp. I know. I can remember that photo was taken, I think, two days after Estella was born. I was like, oh, my God, could they wait at least another week or two? You know, those massive boobs and I felt disgusting. They're like, oh, you'll be fine. But that was quite a thrill, you know. And and I, in fact, I'm packing my studio now because I've just set up a studio at the back of the garage the cottage, um, I came across the stamps and I showed Hunter and he was so impressed. You know, Stella, of course, is nowhere near as impressed about anything I've done, whereas he's like, wow, mum, you did all of this? <laughs> he's my number one fan. I love him for that and other things too, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. And what about the Order of Australia? I, you know, you were born in South Africa, spent a lot of time in New Zealand, and then I guess most of your adult life you've been based here. That was a real honour as well. How did that come about and did it mean a lot to you? My goodness, yes. It was like a huge, you know, honour. Um, and because sometimes, like I said before, you know, I'm always head down sort of working and, and not really wanting any glory from anything because I just enjoy the process and the craft. And I did spend a lot of time on the wool board in South Australia and I really fly the flag for the wool industry. And and I think, you know, it got appreciated and got noticed and I never expected to be noticed in such a, a way that was so formal. I mean, I can actually remember one time when I did meet the Queen and I wasn't going to, and it was actually Estella who said, oh, you must go meet her, Mummy, you got the invitation. And that ended up being such a big thrill for me too. But I think this especially, what it does is it it's not necessarily also about me, it's also about the other people that are out there in the community who are unsung heroes that do so much more and don't get any gratitude. And I think, you know, that day when I got mine and it was announced, there were so many other people, I just, you know, made me cry because they do so many things and they're our unsung heroes in the community. And that's why I think it's very important sometimes to have an honour system as such. 
not necessarily for me and those who are recognised, but for those who do a lot more. Yeah, that's beautiful. I totally agree and it's a a wonderful honour. Another thing I noticed I hadn't been aware of until just recently was the Louis Vuitton Business Award you got back in the 90s. I mean, that's phenomenal. Yeah, I unpacked that too in a box last week. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, no, it was at the time, I think, Louis Vuitton have been great mentors and they always helped. And I love that about the French fashion industry, even though there's a lot of competitors and there's a lot of groups kind of vying for space and control. There are also a lot of groups who actually look for artists and support them and mentor them. And in a kind of very unofficial way, Louis Vuitton, I was very close to them and they always helped. If I needed anything, I could pick up the phone or there was always someone that would mentor me and unofficially. And that was great. And I try and do that wherever I can with our industry if I'm always available if somebody wants to pick up the phone and ask for some advice. Whereas I think I felt very alone when I started my business. I didn't really have anybody else to pick up the phone to. And even in the time, you know, there were always other businesses like Scanlon and Theodore or Sassenbide. And there were always two people in the business, whereas I was always just me and my lonesome. There was no other partner. (laughs) But that award gave me that, you know, international recognition too, that helped a lot with stores that I sold to, seeing that I had a relationship with Louis Vuitton and I only realised that many years after, not at the time actually. That's incredible. You were already doing your collections in Paris when Australian Fashion Week started up, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So that kind of came a little later and was a great sort of help for launching a lot of the other designers internationally, but you'd sort of gone out, I guess, and blazed that trail early on, hadn't you? Yes. But, I, you know, I think Australian Fashion Week, you know, there's a lot of people who compliment it. There's a lot of people who are negative or sarcastic about it. But I think, you know, one of the biggest things that it did for Australia and the fashion industry was that it stopped the plagiarism because the first fashion week, I think, was filled with, you know, you could sort of say, oh, that's a Louis Vuitton or that's a Prada and that's a this walking down the catwalk and designers had a mishmash of copies, really. And from then on, you know, they worked much harder at developing their own identity as brands. And I think that was the greatest thing that Fashion Week did for Australian fashion and the international marketplace started wanting to buy the brands as they were. And and that's the one thing I think my brand had was its own identity as, you know, a very feminine, I was called the lace maker, lingerie inspired, you know, that outerwear is underwear. And I've always been very true to my aesthetic, was always, as I said before, trying to put a spin on it or giving it a new life or new freshness every season. And I think over the years with Fashion Week, especially in those first 10 years, brands really develop their own identity. And I think it's important. And that's another thing I would say to any designer going out there. It's not about copying somebody else. You can be influenced because you respect them or you appreciate it, but you've got to have your own signature because ultimately when you draw from your mind or your heart, it's got to be your ethos, not somebody else's, because if that designer was to go, what would yours be? Yeah. Wow. Well said. Look, we better wrap it up. I could talk all day, but thank you so much for your contribution to Australian art and culture. Oh, gosh, Lee, thank you. It's nothing. I mean, there's so many more people out there, honestly, the little galleries that are popping up and the musicians and, you know, I'm just astounded by how much we have in our country. And I used to call it the backyard before I went to America or Europe, but I think the international world really looks at Australia now because especially not just for our design and, you know, the IT, it's our food, it's the community, it's such a great place to live and we're very lucky and I think, you know, we need to appreciate and support Australians a lot more and it's great you're out there doing it because sometimes I think it's a bit too complacent and they forget what they have and how wonderful it is. Yeah, well said. 
Well, thanks again. Lots of love. Hope to see you soon. Yes, please. We can't wait. One day. Maybe Christmas. <laughs> okay, look forward to it. Bye-bye. This is Lee Rogers, and you've been listening to the Blank Canvas podcast. I loved learning more about Colette and her large life. I hope you did too. For all things Colette, head to her website, colettedinnigan.com. I can highly recommend her book, Obsessive Creative. It's up there with the best coffee table books I've ever come across and certainly has pride of place in my home. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. <laughs>